It's Wednesday, November 24th, and this is the Debrief Podcast on FingerLakes1.com. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio by Ted Baker, who is living through his first full week of employment here at FL1. Uh, of course, we are elated to have him, and he has done an incredible job so far. Uh, Ted, how are you holding up? How are you uh, living through this week? Well, I'm, I still can't stay up past 10 o'clock without getting tired and going to sleep, and I still roll and toss around from about 4 until 6.30 when the alarm goes off, so little tiny increments, but I get up, I have breakfast, I listen to other radio stations on the way to work, the light's out, I, it's like, wow, this You is get great. to see the sun driving I do. into work. yeah, yeah. Strange. Strange stuff. What's not to like? Yeah, we've got uh, we've got a ton to talk about. Um, of course, one one uh, quick show note off the top here. Uh, Inside the FLX, which had previously been hosted solely by me uh, and occasionally Gabe Trazio back when he was uh, here full time, uh, is also going to be featuring Ted here in the coming weeks. Uh, so you're going to be seeing a lot more uh, in-depth, full-length interviews. Uh, beyond just what we're doing here. So to all my old guest friends from the radio, Ted at FingerLakes1.com if you want to be on the new show. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so let's get into this. Let's get into uh, some of our uh, topics here for the day. First things first, we got carts getting wrangled in Auburn. Uh, shopping carts, that is. Wegmans has debuted a cart wrangling technology called Gatekeeper to make sure shopping carts stay on property. Uh, mixed, reaction, mixed reactions so far to the rollout it seems, though, at least from my perspective, that everybody's missed the obvious. This is a transportation and housing problem, not a Wegmans or City of Auburn one, even though it's it's being rolled out first in Auburn. Uh, reaction to uh, wheels locking up on those shopping carts the second they exit a perimeter that the store has established. Well, my first thought was that on half the carts, you wouldn't know the difference anyway, probably. <laughs> and the other thing, I, you know, maybe it's the cynic in me, but I thought instead of not getting carts back, people are going to get all frustrated and bash the hell out of these carts over on the perimeter. So on the outside of the parking lot, they're going to find these carts with the wheels ripped off. And <laughs> so, I, you know, I understand. Apparently, it's, it's, it's quite a big deal. My daughter works at the Geneva Wegmans and lives in the apartment complex across the street and they actually send somebody over a couple times a week I guess from Wegmans to pick up all the carts and bring them back across the street because people just wheel them across the street when they shop bring them home and just leave them out in the front of the uh, parking lot. Yeah and the city of Auburn uh, for a little bit of context on that had instituted essentially I believe it was a $100 per cart uh, fee that would be assigned to whatever store um, the cart came from. Now, a few people, a few very smart people, I should add, uh, in the comments on social media asked, how on earth would the city know where the, where the shopping cart came from? To which I, I simply inquire, uh, when was the last time you saw a shopping cart that didn't have a billion oh, yeah. kinds of branding? Yeah, they're branded. I mean, there's, there's no, no mistaking a Wegmans shopping cart versus another. It's interesting, though, because, and this is something that, you know, I, I live around Rochester, so this is something that we see pretty regularly in terms of shopping carts off property, at intersections, sort of at bus stops especially, um, but never really thought about it as a problem that, that is too apparent or frequent outside of the, the larger cities or, or larger metro areas, but apparently it is. I'm curious now if this is not going to spawn some sort of conversation or broader conversation about why this is happening. Because this isn't just people taking shopping carts because they want shopping carts. Nobody wants a shopping cart. Literally no one wants a shopping cart. 
except for the people who need the shopping cart to bring their groceries back to their home or wherever they are residing. And it's just interesting to me that instead of you know a city or a town or a municipality or even the grocery store for that matter standing up and saying hey um, maybe this isn't an us or a you problem but maybe this is a broader problem that needs a little more fixing and a little more nuance than just a fine and locking wheels um, that that it didn't happen it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me you have more faith in society than I do. We've been talking about this for how many ever years I've been doing this with you now, that they always miss the big picture. So, yeah, I mean, there's some opportunity here. How about somebody inventing a lightweight, foldable shopping cart that you can subscribe to and rent out or something, or you put a deposit down at the store and you take it home with you and you bring it back next time? I mean, it's there's... There's a whole bunch of different ways of looking at this. So, I mean, kind of sadly, the typical reaction is always to put a Band-Aid over today's problem and not take that step back and go, okay, why is it that, that people feel the need to do this? I, I still, you know, I always ask myself, people that don't have cars that live in the inner cities or just for whatever reason don't have cars, can't afford them, how do you shop for a family of four on a bus? You know, in July, when the bus is going to take an hour and eight stops to get you home, how's that ice cream going to keep? You know, it just, it, so it's, yeah, it, it's a symbol of a bigger problem with with transportation, like you said, and housing, and the way we construct our neighborhoods in which most shopping is not where most people live. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I, a setting like Auburn is a little bit unique in that you have a grocery store in a downtown location and it is close to a lot of residential um, neighborhoods. So I, I think that's probably part of the issue at play, but it's sort of that, that wake up call that, hello, you have people taking carts because they don't have a means of otherwise getting their groceries from A to B. And also, by the way, every time we talk, you know, we're talking about Auburn and, you know, we can have conversations about Auburn, Canandaigua, Geneva, um, the, the larger cities here in the rural Finger Lakes. But at the end of the day, I mean, there are communities with an even greater problem like this. We point to a Penyan, you point to a Seneca Falls, you point to a Newark, you point to uh, these different smaller villages and towns that have the same transportation problems and an even greater distance to cover and it creates even more of a problem when you're talking about access and how residents are able to access or not the grocery store. So here's another idea. I mean Wegmans, I've always said they're the most brilliant retailers I've ever seen. Would there be enough traffic for them to start their own little mini bus service that hit a few places downtown, went to the store, let people shop, immediately took them back had you know storage space in the back to put bags and things, maybe even a cooler to put things in. I, I don't know. There might not be enough traffic to justify that, but you know, I wonder if that would be an idea, maybe I, worth pursuing in some of the bigger population places. To me, just like we, when we talk about transportation issue, issues, I always think about ride sharing and how ride sharing hasn't been tapped into as a as a good idea to solve that broader problem. Um, mainly because it's on demand and it's something that you can access or, or individuals can access whenever they need it. Delivery, same type of same type of concept. All of these stores, you know, you've got all of these third-party services essentially that offer grocery delivery, and we have this systemic problem in in society 
and yet we aren't tapping into the most relevant and easiest to touch technology to solve the problem. The easiest solution to this would be making it easier for people who don't have access to transportation to have their groceries delivered to them. And, and there's another opportunity for, for maybe a single store or in communities that have more than one for a couple of the supermarkets to bring that in-house and, and do their own delivery service and, and make it worthwhile, you know, charge a low enough price that people would want to use it. Or, God forbid, if the, if the government is going to subsidize everything and anything under the sun, uh, why not subsidize something that might actually work? Uh, and to be clear, most of those, to your point, most of those services already exist in all of these communities. You can, you can order your groceries from Aldi's, from Tops, Wegmans, uh, Walmart, all of the grocery stores that we have here in the Finger Lakes. So, I mean, it's not like there isn't, it, there isn't the ability to make this thing happen. Uh, switching gears a little bit, we've got uh, continued fallout from the closure announcement in Willard. Uh, obviously, Willard uh, Drug Treatment Campus is going to be shutting down in, in basically the early part of the second quarter of 2022. Uh, couple thoughts on this, and, and it was interesting because there was a pretty good perspective piece uh, in the Finger Lakes Times earlier, earlier this week about uh, the reaction to it, what it means for South Seneca, what it means for the communities in South Seneca. And I'm just thinking, like, the state doesn't care what happens to local communities or what that local input looks like. Now, obviously, there's going to be an economic impact here to closing Willard, but the state doesn't care. When they're, when they're gaming to meet these large, broad initiatives like closing prisons or closing uh, prisons facilities, even though this isn't technically a prison facility uh, in the traditional sense, they aren't going to be stopped because it's going to have a big impact on a local economy. They aren't going to be stopped because the grocery stores in South Seneca or the smaller you know, restaurants and coffee shops are going to be hard hit by losing out on 350 full-time you know, employees or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's interesting to me because it, it comes off as a bit like surprised every time something like this happens, but how many times have we seen something like this happen where the state mandates something or forces something, uh, a domino to fall, so to speak, in a local economy, has a huge impact on the local economy, and local officials, local reps, stakeholders say, oh my God, the state, I can't believe they're doing this, even though they've done it over and over and over and over again. Well, I, my first thought is when you step back and, and look at the view from above, if you're the state, you've got to make these hard decisions. I mean, wherever you close something, it's going to have a local impact. It would obviously have less of a local impact if you did it in a higher population area. There are more other alternative jobs. The cynic in me wonders how many of these decisions are based on how many votes there are in an area. There aren't a lot of Democratic voters in South Seneca County. They didn't vote for Andrew Cuomo. They're not going to vote for Kathy Hochul or Tish James or whoever else runs on the Democratic side. That was always one of the arguments that came up during the Cuomo administration is that they make these decisions based on who votes Democratic. So the big cities get the benefits and the rural areas get them taken away. It does seem awfully odd to close a drug treatment facility at a time when we have a bigger drug problem than ever. One would think traditional prisons might be more uh, slated for closure than a place like this. 
So it's, you know, and it's tough. And I, one of the questions we asked about it when we were talking on the radio program is, and I don't know the answer to this, is how many of those people who work there are local? I, I suspect that probably a lot of them commute in from other areas. So it isn't, it isn't as if it's going to be 350 South Seneca residents. But still, like you said, the ripple impact, you know, how many of them stop at the Ovid Big M and shop and how many of them go to the restaurants and things. So it, it's a big loss and again one of those big themes that we've been talking about for years is the future of rural upstate New York and whether it has one and this is no doubt going to be another blow yeah and it's interesting one of the one of the pieces that i read uh, focused a little bit on the logic behind the closures and maybe what what some of the things they were thinking about or the state was thinking about when they decided what facilities to close and transporting inmates seemed to be a major factor um, in how you know basically proximity to other facilities where individuals might end up if they are at facility A. Um, and it, it is interesting because I think when you know two things happened here. Um, one, the state said they weren't going to close any drug treatment facilities, or I should say Kathy Hochul said they weren't going to close any drug treatment facilities, and that's exactly what's happening here. But the other factor that a lot of advocates on the, the drug treatment side have said, You've got all of these empty prison facilities already. You've got the one up in Butler and Wayne County. You've got others across the state, small and medium uh, security facility, low and medium uh, security facilities that were never converted to drug treatment facilities. You've got all this opportunity. You've got all this facility space across the state. And every year we're closing more of them and not doing anything with them in response. So, and I find it very hard to believe that there would ever be another facility of Willard's type uh, in that place. So the idea that maybe someday the state would, you know, create a new uh, substance use disorder facility to, to, you know, handle this part of the, the state, I just I find that to be kind of a pie-in-the-sky approach. Yeah, I, I mean, I never really put a lot of stock in the idea that these places were going to be redeveloped. I mean, at one point, you know, Butler was going to become some sort of business park or something. But, I mean, one of the trends we see is that, for the most part, businesses want to build new. I mean, there are very few, you know, the Geneva Walmart, for example, is one of the few where they ever developed from the original model to the super Walmart in the same spot. I mean, yeah. Canandaigua moved. Most places move. So... And I guess, I, I think the state's point of view is that we want to shrink the number of these cells down. And so if we just close a prison that's got 200 beds and replace it with a drug treatment facility, we're, we're really just operating the same number of cells or beds or whatever, but giving them a different name. So there is an opportunity here, of course, to because the the state's intentions, I think, are good. I think too many people are locked up in America, too many people are locked up in New York. And, you know, bail reform has obviously been a big political issue. But I think the idea is that we need fewer people locked up. That also gives us the opportunity to take a different look at how we deal with drug abuse and look at it less as a criminal problem to be solved and more as a health issue. And again, like you talk about, you know, why is it? Why are more people turning to drugs? I think we have a pretty good idea economically and life-wise and, and kind of the way we just feel in our hearts these days as a society. 
isn't real great. So there's, again, bigger issues. That's all. We, we could do nothing but solve bigger issues on this program. Let's <laughs> we could if anybody, if anybody actually listened and acted on them. Uh, so, well, and one of the things that I think about in terms, especially when, I hate to say it, but in, in a small rural community like Seneca County, the, econ- the economic piece is always the first one. It's always the most central one to be uh, picked up and, and said, this is, this is a bad thing, closing this because of loss of employment. Um, it's interesting because every time we have this debate about a large quote-unquote institution downsizing or closing or whatever the case may be, um, we kind of lose track of the fact that so much of our economy is shifting toward uh, tourism and how unsustainable it actually is. It sounds really great. Like the Finger Lakes region obviously is all about tourism, but quality of life, the kind of living you can make working in a lot of tourism fields, unless you're going to actually like own a business. Um, it just isn't the kind of living that can allow you to have a good quality of life unless you're going to work several jobs. I mean, I, it's just sort of this like, we lose touch with that every time we have this conversation about why is it a big deal that Willard is going to close? Well, because Willard, the jobs there are good paying jobs, unlike the jobs that you're often working in other uh, tourism centric uh, spaces, which also are incredibly seasonal. So there, there does need to be kind of this like check and balance, I think. It's an opportunity to have a conversation about good paying jobs, what kind of jobs places like Seneca County should be going after uh, in terms of trying to attract and also trying to keep our economy in balance so that when a, a hillside or when a, a Willard decides to close, it isn't a crushing blow to the economy. Uh, two points on that. Number one is that there's no law that says tourism jobs have to be low-paying jobs. I mean, maybe they're going to have to raise up their salaries to compete, and maybe it's going to have to cost more to visit attractions. We've seen during the pandemic the wine industry in the Finger Lakes has rethought what it does in terms of the tasting room experience. For mm-hmm. for years it was free at most places and so you had the people that came in and the big bus tours and they'd guzzle down all the free wine they could and go on to the next place and guzzle down all the free wine. So now many of the tasting rooms are starting to charge enough money that that you can't really do that and they're catering more to the people that are more likely to stay and buy a couple of bottles or a case yep. so so they've retooled the way they do things there's no reason the rest of the industry couldn't do that and and again maybe they need to charge a little more at tourism attractions so they can pay better and keep people in those industries the other thing this points out is the problem with basing economic development around the big splashy headline 300 jobs here because those 300 jobs can go away the best way to grow economically it's like I said if if you're in the economic development business you want that headline 300 new jobs coming 150 places hiring two people each doesn't make a headline and and sadly that's the way so I I don't blame the people doing economic development because that's the system is stacked against small businesses growing a little bit like this one here. You brought me in because you thought the time was right and you've, you've brought a couple other people in recently. That's not going to make a headline 
like it would if you plunked an industrial plant down with 200 brand new shiny jobs. But that's that's economic growth, and I think in the future that's the way it's going to have to be. We're going to have to get away from looky here we brought 300 jobs in because as we see just as easily as those 300 or 350 can come they can go yeah uh and of course uh, speaking of jobs this is a great segue into our next topic uh, we've got an absolute mess in healthcare, especially in the region um hospitals are are effectively in in a state of flux and chaos uh, earlier this week we learned that non-critical patients were being diverted from st james mercy hospital in hornell due to capacity issues uh, urmc had said that it wouldn't have to interrupt any patient services because of the vaccine mandate, the state healthcare vaccine mandate, which took effect on Monday, Monday at 11.59 p.m., I believe it was. Uh, yet Thompson Hospital admitted they had to divert patients at least twice last week because of capacity issues, not because of the vaccine mandate, but they are also short-staffed because of the vaccine mandate. They have something like 350 open positions. Uh, that had been open largely since before the the pandemic even came around. Uh, all of these all of these issues. They're not solely staffing issues. They're not solely vaccine issues. They're not solely uh, COVID related issues. What are your general thoughts on the situation as we see this continue to unfold? I think that COVID nineteen has become the convenient whipping boy and and blame for everything going on. These problems in healthcare were beginning to happen long before COVID. We're, we're seeing merger mania. The, the number of companies are getting smaller and smaller. And when they merge, you know, we saw when, when Thompson and UR merged, they, they closed some of their facilities. I think in Farmington, they closed a, 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 an urgent care place. So these are problems that predated COVID. Yeah. Having said that, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to throw roadblocks in front of people that are trying to deliver health care. On the other hand, getting vaccinated seems like pretty much a no-brainer for people who are involved in the healthcare industry. So, I, you know, same thing. I, maybe they need to pay more, or maybe we need to open up a whole bunch of more nursing and medical schools to get people trained for these jobs because it's it's nationwide there aren't enough people to provide care and and maybe our current model where everybody shows a card and everything's free you know minus your deductible or whatever needs to change i i've always said that the purpose of insurance you think about it is to guard against a devastating loss okay if if the uh, doorknob fell off your front door you're not going to file in your homeowner's insurance for that. You're going to go down to the store and buy a new doorknob. If half your house falls apart, then you're going to file. But with medicine, we've gone to the approach where every single thing we do is on insurance. The, the This is the TED medicine plan in America. I came up with this many years ago, but nobody's adopted it yet. We should have a system of inexpensive cash clinics to do routine care where insurance isn't accepted. Have you, if you go into a doctor's office these days, you'll find three or four people providing medical care and about eight doing paperwork. Why don't we get back to the old way? Maybe not you know, the doctor coming to your house with his little bag, but when you have some routine thing done, wouldn't it be nice if there were a place you could walk in, get it done, and pay 20 bucks or 50 bucks right then and there 
There's no insurance billing. I mean, it's half the overhead in your typical family practice, probably more than half, is just doing insurance paperwork and, and all that kind of thing. So uh, we just we don't have a good system, and we pay uh, approximately two to three times more per person for medical care in America than every single other developed nation on earth. They've all found a way to do it just as effectively as we do, but for way less money. We, we have a broken system, and it's not because of COVID. Yeah, and honestly, a lot of what you're talking about is stripping the regulation out of uh, the current healthcare system, whether that be the regulation that's imposed by the government or state authorities or just the regulation that's brought on by the insurance companies or the existence of the insurance companies. I, I do think it's interesting, and, and I sort of align what you're thinking of or what you're describing to what some uh, insurance providers are starting to do now where uh, there obviously are a lot more high deductible insurance plans than there are the co-pay co plans that, that people were probably more accustomed to a decade or two ago. And it's interesting because a lot of the uh, insurance providers, mine included at MVP, just they include basically a ton of essential services that you just are expected to get every year as just go do it and there's no cost. Like it's just, Right, and it's that, that's been a, an encouraging trend. There's also more you know, more health plans include things like gym memberships and right. having incentives. If you do things to take care of yourself, you won't pay as much as the people who don't because the system has been very much toward fixing problems after the fact instead of solving them ahead of time. I mean, we're, we're the most obese, poor nutrition country probably on the planet. So, yeah, and I think that is, and that was where I was going to take this next because that's the first thing I keep thinking of is like, Obviously, we have a lack of beds, given how unhealthy America is collectively, right? Um, and this isn't like a Finger Lakes problem. This isn't like a New York State problem. This is just an American problem across the board. It's interesting because if we look at this from the perspective of how many beds do we, adequate, do we need to adequately care for, not the worst case scenario, but for how unhealthy Americans are today compared to how unhealthy they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Because in a lot of ways, it seems like we were, or, or the, the trend began probably in the 70s or 80s where facilities started merging, beds started downsizing, uh, or I should say there, there started to be a downsizing of beds at hospitals. And it was aligned with the standard of how healthy people were decades ago. And the reality is, is like we're in a drastically different place. It's like when at the start of the pandemic, there were a bunch of features on one of the hardest hit uh, hospitals in New York City having drastically fewer beds in 2020 than they did in 1920 when the Spanish flu had, had, gone, through, had gone through and run its course. And it's just, it, it was sort of a marvel to people that 100 years ago, a New York City hospital had more beds than it, than it did in 2020 because it just, population growth and everything else just didn't seem logically possible. But in fact, we've we've not only gone that direction, but we've slid the opposite way in terms of how healthy people are. People are drastically unhealthy. I recall the last uh, the last thing that we had gotten from Blue Cross Blue Shield, I think it was in the beginning of every year, they send us this press release that outlines the sort of snapshot of health in your 
region. They, they break western New York into its own region, and essentially the, the outline showed approximately 65% of, of all people were either obese or overweight, and that aligns with the trend across the country. And with that pre-existing, we, we hear this all the time, pre-existing conditions, that pre-existing condition alone is an indicator of all future medical issues that you may or may not have. And that is not a debatable fact. It's just a fact. And if that is the reality of America in 2021 or 2022, then we probably need to make sure our healthcare system can at least handle that reality when we have things like flu or the coronavirus pandemic or whatever the case may be. Because it's interesting, I sort of wonder if five to 10 years from now when COVID-19 is no longer even on anybody's radar, if it won't just be the flu that paralyzes our healthcare system and, and essentially turns it into a, a standstill scenario where, where hospitals like Thompson or, or the one in the Southern Tier have to divert patients to other facilities or can't accept new patients because they're just at capacity, just because of the flu. Yeah, I, I mean, capacity is a tough thing. I, I liken it to electric utilities. When the power goes off, everybody wants it restored right away. But how many trucks do you have sitting idle 99% of the time for that 1% when there's a serious ice storm? So, so that's part of the issue. The other part of our healthcare system that nobody really talks about much, turn on your television and watch those ads. Every single thing that we can possibly have happen to us now has a three-letter acronym and a pill to fix it. Instead of figuring out why these things are happening, what's in our lifestyle, what's our, in our environment that's making these problems happen, instead of trying to mask them with pills, I mean, look at COVID vaccines. The vaccine came out, now we're all told it only is good for a couple of months, now we need a booster we're going to have eternal boosters and Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson are going to rake in billions of dollars. Is it necessary? I, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but the the system, the, the, the people making the decisions about our healthcare in America are bean counters. Yeah. They're not care providers. <clears throat> they're insurance companies and they're hospital, you know, umbrella organizations, they're the ones making the decisions and they're not making it based on how do we have the healthiest America, they're making it based on how do we get rich doing this. Yeah, and the thing that, I think the thing that's most frustrating is you described, that you made the comparison to the scenario where do we need something for that 1% of the situation or 1% of the time? And the reality is that this is very quantifiable. Like we can we can look at the numbers. You can you can look at Seneca County compared to Monroe County, and there are more adverse health situations playing out in Seneca County per capita than there are in Monroe County. Even though Monroe County has four hospitals and loads of clinics and this that and the other thing, Seneca County has none of the above. Um, and and it's just it's kind of disappointing because really it exposes that problem that you're tapping into, which is that those who are in charge of, of health systems are bean counters. They're, they're counting the dollars and the cents. And, you know, it isn't, it isn't a dollars and cents problem. It's a human life problem. And, you know, I think probably sooner than later, we're going to start to see where the, the life outcomes, the health outcomes 
of people in communities where there's less access are going to keep deteriorating while they probably continue to improve in other communities where there is access to all these things. But that's part of the great left-right debate right now in our politics. People on the left want more things taken out of the free enterprise system and brought under a government umbrella like health care, like the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare. People on the right want fewer things that way. They want more of it controlled by the free market. So we could very easily do what most of the other countries on earth have and adopt some sort of socialized medicine. But you're not going to get that anytime soon in the United States. It's just not politically feasible. And I'm not saying it's the right way to go. I'm saying it's a choice that other countries have made, but that because of our politics here in America, it's just not feasible here politically right now. It's tough. Uh, and of course, our last topic for the day here, breaking away from uh, COVID and healthcare related stuff, we've got a hedge fund making a bid to buy uh, Lee Enterprises. Alden, uh, Alden Global Capital is making a $141 million bid to buy the chain of papers. Uh, obviously, this type of deal has and will attract a lot of criticism, especially in uh, journalism circles. Uh, but there are serious questions about how journalism is supposed to exist uh, using those prehistoric means to survive. Um, as in subscribers, uh, classic advertising, direct ads in local uh, local communities. Uh, frankly, things full disclosure things that we've uh, had to look at and evaluate here at Finger Lakes One. Um, but dialing back out here, uh, do we think uh, Alden's going to be successful in this uh, attempt to grab uh, Lee and their? I want to say like twenty to thirty papers that they operate across the country. I think they probably will. I think Alden right now is already one of the largest newspaper owners in the country, so they'll get bigger. But here's the problem. They're not buying Lee Enterprises to provide good journalism for those communities. They're buying it as an asset that they can take a knife to and cut the guts out of and turn it into a moneymaker. That, that's the problem, is, is that you don't have and, and a lot of this goes back to, I think it was in 1986 under President Reagan when media ownership rules changed. It's the same thing that's happened to radio. Before then, there were limits on how many stations you could own. You had to hold them for a certain period of time. You couldn't buy and flip media assets. Uh, all that changed, and now this is the media landscape we have. So we have people buying media properties who have no interest in doing good journalism or good media. They, they, Alden doesn't give a damn whether they have good newspapers. They care about how much money they make. And that's, that's capitalism. That's okay. That's, you're, you can do that. But maybe, maybe, again, maybe journalism shouldn't be subject to the free economy. There's, you know, there, there's, I, I believe in the latest, the, the Build Back Better Act, the second stimulus or second, whatever you want to call it, Biden bill, I think there are subsidies in there for media because mm -hmm. they're starting to recognize that we have a problem if we don't have media. I mean, you've talked about it just here in the Finger Lakes, how, how many fewer meetings get covered than, than used to and how government boards are able to do what they do with no light being shined on them. So it's it's not a good thing when people buy media properties who have no interest in media. Well, there's a lot of criticism, there's always a lot of criticism of um, 
of the 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 gobblers, right? There's always a lot of criticism of the, the hedge funds that come in and try to scoop these properties up. Um, but I think, you know, at least some of the blame also has to be on journalism at large, right? Because the product that is being put out, especially by a lot of newspapers, is an outdated product. And while there are a lot of purists, and I don't even want to say there are a lot of purists, there are some purists who want to see that product continue to exist well into the future. The reality is, is that it simply may not be feasible to have certain components of that continue into forever. For example, the traditional, you mentioned covering meetings, and on paper, the people who really care about what happens at city council meetings or village board meetings or whatever the case may be, um, it's really important to them. But to the community at large, to the people who are willing to sustain and uh, fund a media organization, there isn't enough interest to justify it. And then on top of that, to, to take that a step further, it's rarely being packaged and put together in a way that's actually consumable to a large audience. So unless you've read every story, I'll use a great example. One of the biggest pieces of feedback back when I would cover the Seneca County Board of Supervisors would be this. A reader would, would email me or call me or, or whatever the case may be and say, hey, was reading about this issue that was happening here. When did this start? And it was an issue that had actually started bubbling like a year or two years or God, probably three or four years before that. And given the, the, the scope at which people want to learn about these topics, there isn't a way to package that down in a condensed enough form so that they can actually understand the full issue or the, the full set of issues at play. And until the, you know, those traditional meeting coverage pieces, those, those 1,000, 1,500, 2,000-word features uh, get packaged in a way that the average person can consume in, in you know, less than 30 to 60 seconds, they're never going to have a big audience. And they're never going to be a sustainable product in terms of, you know, being able to sustain employees and people who go to these meetings and spend hours and hours and hours listening to elected officials debate a topic just to table a resolution for another month. Well, all right, let me, we'll start from the content side and go to the business side. On the content side, it's, you know, mass media and the industry I just came from broadcasting has all changed. When the internet came along, it sliced everything up into a thousand little pieces. So if I'm a big fan of quarter horses, I can go to a website that's all about quarter horses. Uh, the, the, the idea of a mass product that appeals to everybody kind of went by the wayside. So both the newspaper and the radio industry struggled with how to deal with that. Then from the revenue side, I mean, when I started in radio in 1978, in most towns, if you had a business and you wanted to get your message out, there were two ways to do it, the local radio station and the local newspaper. There wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Google, there wasn't, you know, TikTok influencers, there weren't a million places to get your message out. So, you know, having just come from the broadcasting industry, you had time in the newspaper industry, they can't find a way to monetize this to the level that it used to be. So that's when you get cutbacks. And then again, you get companies like iHeartRadio 
which is, I think, still the largest owner of radio stations in the country. And, and again, the people that run iHeart, their concern is return to the stockholders. It's not whether the Fresno, California radio station covers Fresno well. So again, you've got people making decisions whose interests are not in putting out the best product, they're in return to stockholders. So it's very difficult. Um, one of the things that attracted me to come here to FingerLakes1.com is that you've put together a model that's working to allow you to to put out this content and to do more of it and get better at it. That's the big challenge. Not many people in media have figured out to do it, and unfortunately a lot of people in media right now aren't trying to figure out how to do it and don't really care. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the, and that's the, the reaction that I seem to see most um, on social media too among those journalism circles is like there's not really an interest in um, sort of tightening it up so that these new ideas or different things can be considered. Right, like there isn't really there's there's this desire to say we need to go back to we need to go back to we need to um, step back. You need to step forward and you need to move forward. That's my message to literally anybody in media. Period. You need to move forward into the future. And you know it, it's interesting because I think um, this is going to be a tipping point for a lot of the next five years is going to be a tipping point for a lot of a lot of media organizations, small medium and large. Um, the bigger ones, the your big corporate entities, they're going to be just fine. And frankly, I think your your smaller uh, news organizations, your locally owned news organizations, which is the secret sauce, uh, be locally owned. Um, they're going to be the ones that find success. These medium these medium sized, you know, dailies and uh, news organizations that are owned by uh, a Lee or or a community media group that that own say. 10, 20, 30 papers across the country, none of them being big, big markets. I mean, that's going to, that's, it's a matter of time. But even, you know, you said the big ones will be okay. I'm not sure that'll even necessarily be the case. I mean, I think among Lee's holdings, I believe they have the Baltimore Sun. I think they have the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I, I mean, look at an LA Times. They probably had, a few years ago, hundreds of people in their newsroom. I would guess that that number today, I'm just taking a wild guess, is probably like 30 or something. I mean, it's yeah. it's just they they can't figure out how to make the money. That's that's the challenge. I mean, that's the challenge for radio and for print is how do we turn what we do into money? Newspapers have tried firewalls. And, you know, and and or here's your your limit of 3 free articles a month and then you're done. Well, unfortunately, if I can't read your article about subject X, I'll Google it and I'll find somebody else's that isn't behind the paywall. I don't think that model has worked. They, they've got to find, and I don't know the answer. Uh, uh, you the know, answer is it If micro. I did, I'd buy some radio stations. I mean, it's, I don't know how they make the money to do the product they used to do. And then the, the, the technology came along. I, I was sitting in the studio at my station in Western Massachusetts in 1992 when a bunch of cardboard boxes start arriving and it was computer automation equipment. Yeah. And they said, well, this is just for the overnight. And I said, baloney. 
it won't be. It won't be long until it's for all day, and so that's what's happened. At most radio stations today, there's one or two live people in the morning, and the rest of the day is not live people on the air. It's pre-recorded or it's satellite programming made possible by this automation. Yeah, and, and I will say, um, locally there's been some chatter I, I've seen uh, since the, the Alden news about Lee. Uh, I've seen some chatter on Twitter about there, there needing to be a micropayment solution uh, for uh, at least written content. Yeah, I've said that for a long time. I don't know why, you know, I would be willing to pay. I don't know what the amount is that makes it worthwhile, but it's frustrating to get to these articles. I, You know, I used to gather information for the radio show, and I, oh, Syracuse.com, this is subscriber only. And you can only subscribe to so many things, but if it were an easy way to have your card linked and it was five cents or 10 cents or 25 cents an article, I think a lot of people might do that. So I, I, I mean, I hope there's a model out there. I mean, I wish my friends in radio well and, and I, I've known a lot of print journalists over the years and I feel terrible. You know, you can go on Twitter almost every day and see somebody tweeting about how they're off to their new thing in something other than print journalism and it's mostly not because of their choice at most times so I, I hope they can find a model I mean I guess on the other hand I guess I maybe hope they don't and we can kick their butts here but uh, you know so <laughs> it would like, be nice if we could all exist and, and all be successful there's room for everyone to exist there just isn't the will for everyone to exist unfortunately I think that's the problem uh, there are ways there uh, you know and sometime we'll we'll probably spend a whole show going through all the different ways and means and, and methods for for how uh, small even independent publishers can can make a go of it in small communities um, but you know I don't think the micropayment solution is is the one I, I don't think that's the the answer um, it's too reliant on on frankly your most fickle uh, customer which is your reader if you're if you're especially in today's today's climate um, but yeah that's a, that's a topic for another day that's all for today and unlike every other time we've ever done this show I don't have to ask you where people can listen to you because right they're going to be listening to you right here um, any idea uh, who some of the conversations might be coming up uh, in the next several weeks, or are we still in the planning phase? Well, I'm in the, I mean, I, I'm going to reach out to a lot of the people that I dealt with on the radio program, but I, I've just been having all these ideas percolate through my head. Um, I'm fascinated by the craft beverage industry here in the Finger Lakes. I'd love to talk to some of the winemakers and some of the brewers and some of the cider makers about how they do and, and, and what they do. And I just... So all these ideas, that's, that's one of the beauties of, of taking a new position like this, is all these ideas are percolating in my head right now, and, and you guys have taken off the reins and said, okay, go with it. So I, I, I want to, there's a lot of stories to be told in these Finger Lakes, yeah. and, and that's what I'm here for. So over the weeks to come, uh, we're going to delve into as many people's stories as we can, and, and I just I had this thought this morning about how people always complain. One of the great complaints about media is you never tell any good news. So I started coming up with some ideas of ways to do that because there there is good news out there. So uh, looking forward to it. Lots of opportunities yep. and and it's uh, you know we have this broad platform. It's 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 everything. It, it's newspaper 
and radio and television all rolled into one. That's right. Uh, and it's ted at fingerlakes1.com. That's where you can uh, send all of those ideas. And if you're listening to the show and you've been uh, either on one of my programs or if you've been on his program in the past, uh, hit him up. He, I'm yeah. sure, will be interested in talking to you again. Uh, anyway, we will be back next week with another episode. Stay tuned to fingerlakes1.com for the latest news, weather, sports, and podcasts seven days a week. We will see you next time.